you guys want to make your way back to your general seating area. For those of you who are new or new-ish, I'm Pastor Chris, and I will be the one talking to you for a little while now. Happy Easter to you all. We have been working through the book of Joshua here uh, at Gateway downtown for the last few weeks, and will for a few more weeks, but, but obviously this morning we're taking a break from that to talk specifically about Easter. So if you guys would, if, if you if you need a Bible, by the way, just throw your hand in the air. We've got some people who will bring one around for you. We've got plenty. You can take them home with you. Otherwise, turn, click, swipe, or do what you otherwise do to get to Mark chapter 16. And as you do that, if you guys would stand up with me as we read Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance at the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that in your infinite wisdom you've given us the word as we need it and as you have planned and purpose for our lives to teach us, to correct us, to rebuke us, and to instruct us in all righteousness. God, we pray that we would have open hearts to hear your word this morning and to be changed by it, to live by it, to be shocked by it even as we ought to be shocked by the very words of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's the end of the book of Mark. I know there's some words on the page or on your screen that come after this short paragraph, and I know it might look like the book continues on, but most of your Bibles, though, there's probably some sort of uh, demarcation, some sort of footnote or marker. My Bible says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. You probably have a marker, something like that. And that's probably just cryptic enough to make you a little uneasy if, if 
you haven't studied this in a, in a little bit of depth. And that's probably why you've also never heard, probably never heard an Easter sermon on Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. Maybe you've heard a sermon on the whole chapter 16. Maybe you've uh, heard a sermon on the Great Commission in Matthew 28, or the Ascension of Jesus in Luke's Gospel. The personal testimony of John himself in his Gospel makes for a great natural Easter sermon. And they don't talk, they don't require talking about a tricky textual issue. So there's a probably a good chance you've never heard a sermon on just verses 1 through 8. Now this isn't going to be a, a message on textual criticism, which is the art and science of determining exactly what the biblical text originally said. It's not a sermon on Bible versions. It's a sermon on Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. But we probably need to address a few basic questions revolving that issue. Your first question might be, why, why, why don't we think verses 9 through 20 are part of Mark? And the simple answer is twofold. On one hand, the ancient manuscripts, like your Bible probably says, the ancient manuscript copies of the book of Mark, um, they point to these things not being part of the book of Mark. The earliest ones don't have them. But the oldest copies we have in the book of Mark don't have these verses. Uh, the oldest translations of the book of Mark that we have don't have these verses. They're just not there. Some include a few extra verses, some include a different set of extra verses, some don't include them at all. And so, that manuscript evidence we have points to these not being original. On the other hand, a, a second reason is, is that you read through the Gospel of Mark, and you read through the flow of the thought, especially in Greek, these verses don't really fit with what Mark has been trying to do up to this point. They don't fit with what he's been trying to say. Uh, you probably even notice in the English it's a little bit disjointed. If you go on to verse 9, it's like the narrative kind of cuts. We have the women right away, and then all of a sudden something else is happening that doesn't seem like it flows. It's like it's ignoring the fact that uh, this just happened. These extra verses use a lot of strange and peculiar words that Mark doesn't use anywhere else in his book. One way you can look at this is consider this. What's more likely, that the Christians, the early Christians, who were so scrupulous to make sure that every word of Scripture was preserved perfectly, just lost a piece of Mark in some of their copies? Or is it more likely that Mark had a surprise ending to his book? Shocking ending to his book. An ending that leaves us with some of Jesus' followers running in fear and fright at the news that they've heard. And that in communities that maybe didn't have the whole of Scripture yet in the early church, they felt the need to add in a few extra details to clarify what happened for people. I think the second is far more likely. In fact, for those type of reasons, nearly every top-notch Bible-believing scholar agrees that Mark didn't write those words in verses 9 through 20. So your second question might be, well, why in the world would Mark end his story with these women fleeing in terror? 
And that's a more interesting question. There's a couple competing theories about that. The first one is that Mark did not intend the story of Jesus to end here. Maybe, maybe it was lost at a very early point in time. One of the very first copies of Mark lost it and lost the original ending and it just got copied from there. I find that to be very unlikely for the reasons I mentioned before. Christians were very, very careful to make sure that every word of scripture was preserved. I find that to be a highly unlikely scenario that part of Mark's gospel was lost. There's a few scholars that think that, but I think that's very unlikely. Others think he planned an ending. He had planned to write an ending to the gospel of Mark. But maybe something happened. He died. Uh, about the time, for instance, that Mark was writing his gospel, uh, or by some date estimates, was about the time that Caesar Nero was persecuting and executing Christians in Rome. Mark was known to be a follower, close associate of Peter, who was believed to have possibly been in Rome around that time, and that's when Peter was executed. They would make sense that Mark was executed around that time, and maybe Mark just didn't get the opportunity to round off his gospel the way he wanted to round off his gospel. And of course, all of this is speculative. We have no way of knowing this. This is just conjecture. We're just guessing and grasping at straws. But the one thing that I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of is, is whether Mark wanted it to end this way or not, knowing that all of Scripture is God-breathed, inspired by the Holy Spirit, moved through human authors. I believe the book of Mark ended exactly the way God wanted it to end. And we have to wrestle with Mark the way God has left Mark for us. And that is that they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And as it stands, I find it to be a fantastic ending. As it stands, it points to an unnerving truth. A scary truth. That it's possible to know everything you need to know about Jesus and still fail to be his disciple. It's possible to have all the right beliefs about Jesus and still not truly be his follower. Let's dig into the passage and see what the Spirit has to tell us through the writing of Mark. Verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. The opening scene of this narrative is important because it sets us at a very particular point in history, a very particular point in time with very specific people. It says that the Sabbath was passed. The Sabbath was the last day of the Jewish week, and in the Jewish reckoning, a day went from sundown to sundown. So, this is early evening on Saturday. The sun has gone down. The Sabbath is technically over. They're free to go about and do work. An observant Jew, we suppose Mary and Mary and Salome were observant Jews, they would not have done work on the Sabbath so they can return to work now and buying and selling goods would have been considered work. So they waited until the Sabbath was over 
to make their purges. Jesus had been crucified. He had been buried on the Friday before. And it's important for the Jews, especially the Jews of religious authority, that he die and be removed from the cross before the start of the Sabbath. And as a result of that, everything was done very hastily, very quickly. And there likely was not sufficient time to properly attend to the dead body. In Jewish custom, a dead body was not embalmed, but it was perfumed. It was anointed. This was a way of honoring the dead. It was also a way of masking unwanted odors. All right, so very practical, and uh, but also very special. They didn't just slap on anything. These probably were costly uh, perfumes and oils and ointments. And most of Jesus' disciples were already in hiding at this point. They are fearing, probably for their lives. The exceptions were few and notable. For instance, there was Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph of Arimathea is, is the guy who's, who owns the tomb that Jesus is buried in. Unlike most of other, the rest of Jesus' followers, uh, Joseph was brave enough to come forward and request Jesus' body. He went to Pilate after the crucifixion asked for the body that he might be given a proper burial. And then there's this group of women who were near the cross when Jesus died. Not hiding. And they've come now to properly honor their teacher. Three of them are mentioned by name. There may have been more. But despite their names, we know so little about these women. Mary Magdalene is more properly the Mary the Magdalene. Uh, she's a woman named Mary from the town of Magdala. That's all that means. She's mentioned a few times in the Gospels. And the longer ending of Mark, verses 9 through 20, uh, make mention of the fact that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Even though the longer ending is not, in my view, originally written by Mark, we have no reason to doubt its historicity. So we could... Say she's someone that Jesus touched in a, in a very powerful way. But that's about all we know of her. Some later traditions associated her with, with prostitution and, and some other uh, types of sins. There's, there's no good evidence for that, no good reason to believe that besides some loose traditions trying to figure out who everyone was in the Bible. Um, she's Mary from Magdala, who probably had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. We have Mary, the mother of James, who's also the mother of Joseph, or Joseph. And it's not the Apostle James, it's not Jesus' brother, James. It's a different James. Mary was a very common name in first century Palestine, and so was James. Uh, besides the fact that she was worthy of being named, though, we know very little about her. If we look at some, some parallel passages between... Matthew and Mark and Luke, this might be the same as Mary, the wife of Clopas, who might be the same as Cleopas, who was one of the disciples who, you might remember, met Jesus on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. Luke records that story for us, but we just can't be for sure. And finally, Salome is, is mentioned by name, but we know very little about her. Again, by comparing Matthew and Mark, we, we get an impression maybe... Maybe Salome is also the wife of Zebedee. The father, her being the mother 
of the apostles James and John. But it's impossible to be certain. What is certain is that Mark, like all the gospel accounts, like Matthew, like Luke, like John, placed women as the first witnesses to the empty tomb. The first to learn that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And this is significant because in Jewish culture at the time and in large swaths of Gentile culture at the time, a woman's testimony was not considered valid. In fact, so pervasive was this sentiment that an early church leader, some of you may have heard of him, named Origen, in a debate with a pagan named Celsus about a hundred years after Mark wrote his book, about a hundred Fifty years after Jesus was crucified, Celsus uh, disparagingly suggested the idea of Jesus' resurrection was attested to by, quote, a hysterical woman, suggesting that this was bunk and nonsense because your first witness is of the female gender. Significant that God entrusted his initial revelation of Jesus' resurrection to, to those whom much of society had deemed weaker or less trustworthy, because in God's creation, male and female find their equal dignity. We see a, a pattern where God is, through Jesus, making the high things low and the low things high. If the early Christians had wanted to make up a story about Jesus Christ and from the dead, they could have put Peter there. They could have put John there. They could have put Joseph of Arimathea there. They could have put any number of characters there who would have been so much more believable. But the fact that they put women there, that they put the women there even when they were insulted and ridiculed for the fact that it was women who saw it and told them about it, suggests it must have really happened that way. Verse 2, And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So after purchasing the necessities for the anointing, the women apparently retired for the evening. But they arose very early on the first day of the week. That is Sunday. Mark's description of the time suggests a time very near to the sunrise. So I did a little looking what time sunrise happened on what day we thought this happened in Israel. Maybe 5.30, 5.45 in the morning. Relatively early. And they say to one another, verse 3, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now that's a good question. And the irony should not be lost on us. These women had come prepared to anoint Jesus' body, but they had no way to access Jesus' body. Now, I've read different suggestions about what the problem is here. Uh, one commentator suggested they had overlooked a significant detail uh, in, the, in the chaos of a tumultuous weekend. And that would be understandable. In all their grieving and all the events, all the hysteria, maybe they just kind of overlooked the fact that uh, somebody needs to move the stone. Another commentator suggests a much more practical solution. Well, the men were hiding. 
Who were they going to ask? They were all terrified and in fear of their lives. So, whatever the case is, whatever the reason is that they didn't have a plan for rolling the stone away, they are certainly going to the tomb anyways. And they're going to wait there, I guess, until someone comes along who can help them out. But they are trusting that eventually, somehow, they are going to get in. And looking up, verse 4, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. So the, the irony continues here, doesn't it? All their worries were in vain. The stone had been rolled back for them. And, and it was no small feat, because Mark wants us to know it was very large. The depiction that you see in films and TV and cartoons actually is probably rather accurate here. It was, uh, you, never, you never say that about the Bible, but this is one of those times where you have a, probably had a large roundish stone that covered the entrance of the tomb. It was probably set in a little bit of a groove to help it roll and it was fixed in place by a smaller stone prevented, I guess, from, you know, shifting out away from the tomb. You wanted a big rock on a tomb like this for several reasons. One, no one wants the stench of a dead body to get out. I think that's, uh, we can all agree with that. No one liked grave robbers. And then especially, especially in Jesus' case, we know from Matthew, no one wanted to have any accusation that Jesus' body was stolen. And so the rock would have been very large. And in fact, we know that Roman guards were stationed outside the tomb. But no sign of them here in Mark's Gospel. And with their concern alleviated, though the women were probably wondering who did it and how they did it, nonetheless, they had a job to do. They had a mission to accomplish. They were going to anoint this body And so they went in. Verse 5, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Now, the the, the tomb was probably large enough to walk into, at least maybe duck down, and then you could likely stand up once you were inside of it. And being a rich man's family tomb, there was probably spaces for many bodies to be buried. Though Luke tells us that Jesus was, in fact, the first one to use this tomb. So Joseph of Arimathea had purchased this tomb for his family, and no one had yet been laid to rest in it until it was given to Jesus. But there may have been shelves on the, the right, and shelves on the left, and shelves in the back, where you could place the bodies of your deceased loved ones. And so they were they went through this kind of opening little tunnel, get to the main area of the tomb and are going to the place in there where Jesus' body was buried, and they see a figure dressed in white sitting, and they're alarmed. I would be too. Can you imagine you're going from the the sun of, of early morning Palestine into a dark tomb to look for a dead body? And of course, when you first walk in, there's very little that you can see. And quickly, your your eyes adjust to the light. And as you do, there's only one body that you see. It's sitting upright, it's dressed, and it's apparently quite alive. I would be alarmed. R.T. France, in his commentary on Mark, explains that the word Mark uses here to express alarm conveys a 
powerful mixture of shock and fear. And he cited James Dunn to say it represents a shuddering horror. This is not a fear of reverential awe. This is sheer terror. And again, I would be too. I imagine that the poor women's blood ran cold. And if their faces could have been made out in the dim of the light, I'm sure they would have been as pale as the young man's garments. But they were quickly reassured. He said to them, do not be alarmed. Do not have this shuddering horror. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And we're getting the sense here, aren't we, that this is more than just a young man. This is an angelic being. The surprise appearance, the bright white clothing, the command to not be alarmed, along with knowledge that no other human being, no mere human being would have had, all point to this being a divine messenger. And the angel tells the women to not be so scared. He knows that they have come to seek Jesus of Nazareth. James Edwards, in his commentary, Mark, makes the keen observation that in Mark's writing, people seeking for things from Jesus are always off base. Every time Mark writes about people seeking things about Jesus, they're in the wrong, usually in need of a rebuke. And that stands here, too. The women are seeking Jesus, but he's not there. He's been raised. Exactly as he taught his disciples over and over and over again. What's more, they are told they will see Jesus in Galilee, which is exactly what Jesus had promised his followers before his death. In other words, they had no business seeking Jesus at the tomb. They shouldn't have been there. If they had believed Jesus, if they had listened to him, if they had heard his message, if they had trusted in what he had told them, they wouldn't be in a tomb outside of Jerusalem at all. They'd be in Galilee waiting patiently for him to show up. Because that's exactly where he told them he'd be. You see, at this very moment, the women are demonstrating their lack of true faith. If they had believed Jesus, if they had trusted his words and his message, they wouldn't look for him at the tomb. They have wasted their money on costly perfumes to anoint a dead man who's not dead. They've wasted their evening and their morning seeking someone who couldn't be sought The male disciples had exhibited a lack of faith in fleeing for their lives. The female disciples have exhibited a lack of faith by not believing in Jesus' promise. Now there's some key pieces to the angel's message. 
First, he knows that they are seeking, though foolishly, Jesus of Nazareth. And that's important. This is a historical person. This is Jesus from the town of Nazareth. He lived and breathed in Palestine in the third decade of the first century. He is a person who can be put on a historical timeline in a historical place. He is Jesus of Nazareth. Second, he was crucified, the angel reminds them. And you can't undercut this fact. Jesus of Nazareth died. He was executed. He was hung up on a Roman cross. He was left to slowly suffocate or die of exposure. He gave up his own life. His side was pierced to ensure that he was dead. And the Romans were good at killing people. Jesus was not mostly dead. He was fully dead. He was crucified dead. He was dead. Third, the angel reminds them, tells them, he has risen. Which must have been dumbfounding to the women. It shouldn't have been. Jesus told his disciples over and over that he would die and rise. And Mark records several of those instances in his own book. But it has actually happened. The man who was mocked, the man who was taunted and whipped and beaten and whose hands and feet were run through, whose side was pierced, the man who had been laid dead, really dead, in the tomb on Friday and who had sat there, laid there, until Sunday morning without food or water because he was dead. This man has been raised from the dead. And finally the angel draws the women's attention to the place where Jesus had been laid. They had been with him in his death. They probably were well aware of it. There could be no mistaking it. The man who had been there is not there. There had been a body, but now the body is gone. Jesus did not merely raise in some spiritual fashion. He is not a mere ghost. He is not a disembodied spirit. The body was gone because the flesh and blood that belonged to Jesus of Nazareth had walked out of the tomb on a Sunday nearly 2,000 years ago. This was nothing short of gospel. This was nothing short of good news. Jesus had risen from the dead, their master, their teacher, their Lord. He had done exactly as he told them he'd do. There was no need for mourning or for tears, for the one that they loved was alive. This was good news. And so go. Share the good news. Tell all the disciples and and tell Peter, yes, even Peter who betrayed Jesus, tell him, tell Peter and all the rest the good news that Jesus is alive as he said he would be. And then the shocking conclusion of Mark's Gospel. And they went out And they fled from the tomb, for the trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The women did not merely leave the tomb. They fled. Why did they flee? Because they were, in short, terrified. 
The word typically is used of an escape from danger. And apparently the women felt themselves in danger here. Could be many reasons why. Maybe the missing body. Knowing that the authorities were concerned about a body showing up missing, maybe they were afraid they would be implicated in some sort of crime. Perhaps they feared for their lives. Whatever their specific fears, they were literally shaking. It says they were trembling and they were astonished. A word that suggests shock at an amazing event. This was the wrong response. As John put it in his letter, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. If Jesus had risen from the dead, after all they had seen, after all they had learned, what would be to fear? If they loved him. But their ironic faithlessness is demonstrated in the next line more than any other. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They were given a specific command to tell the good news, but they did not tell the good news. They were afraid. Scripture is clear that we are saved. We are rescued from the deserved penalty of our sins through faith alone. But Scripture is also clear that true faith manifests itself in faithful obedience. That is, those with true faith will live out that true faith in their actions. And the women failed because they were afraid. In ending the story here, Mark puts us in the shoes of these women. These three women from ancient Palestine had walked with Jesus. They had heard his teachings. They likely knew more about Jesus' life story than you or I ever will. They heard the predictions and the prophecies firsthand. They saw the miracles with their own eyes. They were devoted to Jesus. Even in his death, they were preparing to bring him costly and loving gifts. And yet, in that moment, they showed that they were not his disciples. Not truly. Because in the face of the greatest news the world had ever known, they were silent. And so Mark takes us with them. He takes us with them past the Sabbath, takes us with them to the tomb, takes us with them into the tomb, takes us with them in their fear and astonishment, and Mark takes us with them in their fleeing. And we are left to ponder a couple questions. What will I do with Jesus of Nazareth? These women knew everything but they didn't yet know what to do with him.
And each of us has to come to a, a point where we decide what we're going to do with this Jesus of Nazareth. This man who declared himself the Son of God, who declared himself the Messiah, who declared himself the one who would redeem God's people from their sins. The one who went to the cross and died on it, and yet was not able to be held by death, but rose again from the dead on the first Easter Sunday. So that we who deserve to die, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, and payment that we deserve for our wickedness, for our evil, however small or great we think they are, the payment, the paycheck that we should receive for that is death, and Jesus of Nazareth paid that bill on our behalf so that all who have faith in him by God's grace may be rescued from that impending bill. What will you do with Jesus of Nazareth? Will you turn to him in faith or not? But it's more than that. It's more than just a question of what do we do with Jesus in terms of what do we believe about him and what do we think about him. Because these women knew exactly who Jesus was and yet they still failed. If you read through Mark's Gospel, you'll see this is a a common theme. This is why this is such a perfect ending for Mark's Gospel. His followers are, are constantly left wondering, who is this? What is this? I don't understand. Constantly failing to grasp who this Jesus really is, why he really came, and what it's all about. And in his final statement to us about what it means to follow Jesus, it becomes clear that to follow Jesus means that we are sharers of the good news of Jesus and his resurrection. Mark takes us with these women, I believe, because like those women, we often are terrified to tell people the good news that a man of Nazareth, Palestine in the first century, was God incarnate. That he lived a life without sin. That he might show us how to live, but even more, to be a payment and a ransom for our sin. To die on our behalf and to be raised again to new life. These women failed in their discipleship because they were afraid to tell the world the good news that Jesus was alive. And so there is a calling on us who would think ourselves 
followers of Jesus Christ. That this message, that this belief that we have is not something to be kept to ourselves. It's not something that we can hold on to. It's not something we grab for selfishness, and it's not something we hold on to out of terror of what others might do or say to us or about us. We don't know the exact causes for the women's fear, but we can speculate a lot of really obvious good ones. And what we know is that their fear kept them silent. And that there is a world that's dying because we are silent. And if Mark is telling us anything, it's that if this is going to change the world, it's going to be because his followers were not silent. Will we be people if we claim to know him, if we claim to be his disciples, if we claim to be his followers, who will open our mouths and boldly proclaim this crazy notion that a first century Jew is the savior of the world? Jesus told his disciples, blessed are you. You believe because you see, but blessed more are those who believe without seeing. There's a promise in there. Not just a blessing on us who didn't see and hear the voice of our master, who didn't walk with him and observe his miracles. But there's a promise in there that there would be many there would be many who would never see with our eyes or hear with our ears our Master Jesus and yet would come to faith. And how blessed would we be for that? And I think in that that there's a promise too that even though his closest associates could be in absolute terror for their life, for their health, for their well-being, fail to share the good news of Jesus Christ, we know number one, it didn't last. We have a little bit more details and we know eventually they did. But we know that there would be many who would. Thousands. Millions. Perhaps billions. So that this good news about Jesus would be proclaimed throughout all the earth. And so really, those are your two questions. For some of you, it's what will I do with Jesus of Nazareth? Is he just a historical figure? Is he just a guy who lived? Or is he the Savior of the world who rose from the dead and calls all of us to repentance? And for others of us, the question really is, 
Are we really his followers? Are we really his followers? Or are we like his disciples? Scared? Locked up? Hidden away? Fleeing in terror? And afraid to share the greatest news the world could ever hear? That was Mark's Easter message. Let's pray that it's not us. Father God, we are too often like Mary and Mary and Solomon. In the face of a dying world who so desperately needs to hear your good news, we cower in terror. And there's no Roman authorities seeking those who would protect you. There's no Jewish authorities who would think us next in line for arrest or crucifixion. God, we confess our circumstances are so much better and yet our response is often so much worse. Too often we have failed to be your followers. Forgive us. And give us the perfect love that casts out fear. Give us a courage and a strength by your spirit to not fear the mere things of this world. God, may we be bold to proclaim the good news of your Son, Jesus, as we ought. May those here today who have not yet come to a point in faith in, in, in that Messiah, your Son, Jesus Christ, and for those who would hear about him through our witness of faith, God, I pray that you would break their spirit and break their hearts. That you would reveal your Son in them. That they might respond in repentance and faith. And find the salvation that you offer them freely through the blood of your Son. In whose name we pray. Amen.